Well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome those of you here with me in the Ward Church Sanctuary for what we call our classic worship service. And those of you just now joining us from Knox Hall via video feed for what we call our modern worship service. And those of you joining us uh, via live stream from home. Got a note from a family this morning that's home with sick children. And uh, so glad you can still stay connected uh, via live stream. This is the first Sunday of a brand new year and of a brand new decade. I find this really uh, exciting. While uh, New Year's Day isn't technically a Christian holiday according to any liturgical calendar, I think it's the time of year that Jesus would like. There's something about a new year, fresh starts, new beginnings, a clean slate, and hope for what lies ahead. And I think for many of us, this could be our best year ever. I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions. Those have been widely proven to be ineffective. Uh, I heard someone say a New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. And there's an old blessing that says, may all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. Uh, may it be so. It, it's good to be resolved that's important, uh, but more important to be transformed. Changing ourselves out of sheer effort is very difficult. What we need is a changed heart. What we need is a changed perspective. And today we get back to our study of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And over the next six months, we are going to work through paragraph by paragraph the greatest talk ever given, uh, the very words of Jesus. And the words that we're going to study are transformative. These words have inspired and motivated and confused people for generations. Even world changers like Gandhi, when he was working to overturn colonial powers and restore India to independence, uh, Gandhi was asked, how are you doing this? Nonviolently. And Gandhi, the Hindu, said, I'm just reading the Sermon on the Mount and doing what Jesus said to do. A couple decades later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. found in the Sermon on the Mount the inspiration and the methods that drove the civil rights movement. The words that you and I are going to study have changed the world before, and they can change the world again. The section of the Sermon on the Mount that we begin today is a section we're calling this series Rethinking Right and Wrong, subtitle A Better Kind of Good. And the idea here is that we tend to put the world into two categories of people, good and bad, or if you prefer right and wrong, and Jesus is going to mess with our definitions. He's going to push us toward a better kind of good based not on superficial definitions, but based on inside-out goodness, a surpassing goodness. He's going to help us see that when it comes to goodness, we're just scratching the external surface. This is not a series about trying harder. This is a series about seeing differently. And today we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about anger. Jesus is going to redefine what it means to be good when it comes to anger. Uh, these are inspiring and confusing words. 
I want to read them to you. And this is our main scripture reading of the day. So if you don't mind, I want to ask you to stand again out of respect for God's word. Listen to the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Father in heaven, by your Spirit, open these words of Jesus to our understanding and to our use. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, anger is a a universal problem, and you can't uh, get out of anger by simply trying not to be angry, or just by thinking positive thoughts, or doing yoga. Uh, and anybody seen uh, any Star Wars movie? You notice that there's a lot of anger in the dark side? There isn't enough Jedi yoga mind tricks uh, in the universe to help Kylo Ren with his deep-seated anger issues. It comes from a dark heart. And actually, anger is resolved in the receiving of love and in the restoring of life. I would say more about Kylo Ren's anger anger, uh, resolution, but a lot of you haven't seen the movie yet, and it would make you angry. Um, (laughs) Jesus began by talking not about anger, but by talking about murder. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. And yes, people had heard that said. That was a well-established law in the Old Testament. You shall not murder. Now, it seems kind of obvious to us today, that law, But believe it or not, in the ancient world, this was a giant step forward. Uh, In the ancient world, the rich and powerful could get away with just about anything. People did kill, and with very little consequence. And if somebody was killed, a blood avenger, usually the strongest uh, member of the family, uh, could go and kill the person that killed their favorite person. And so the law of Moses sets a real clear boundary, you shall not murder. This is an excellent rule. Would you agree? But would you not also agree that this is not all that needs to be said about human relationships? Right? It's a good baseline. It's a good starting place, and we can apply this to our marriages and to our parenting and to all kinds of things. You shall not murder. But over time, what happened is people began to think that there are two kinds of people, good and bad, and they use these baseline laws as a definition that would ensure that they were in the good category. The Bible says you shall not murder, 
I've never murdered anyone, therefore I am good. Murderers are bad, I am good. And as we've said in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to challenge our superficial understandings of good. He starts to describe a good person, a kingdom-minded person, a loving person, and he starts with anger. Then he goes on to talk about sexuality, which we'll look at next week, and then, uh, and then relational unhappiness, which we'll look at the next week, and then dishonesty, and so on and so on. And I think the order of topics in the Sermon on the Mount is important. A lot of people think the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a random collection of the teachings of Jesus, but I think the order is intentional on Jesus' part, and I think he starts with anger for a very important reason. Anger is the number one offender of spiritual life. And you can trace this through the Bible from the very beginning, starting with Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. It was anger that led them astray. And we don't seem to be getting any better at anger in our time than in theirs. According to FBI statistics, in America today, there is one violent crime conducted every 24 seconds. And according to Prism Magazine, domestic violence is the number one cause of emergency room visits by women in our country. And I saw one report that said there are 1,500 injuries or killings that happen as a result of, of traffic, right? We see, our, we see anger in every traffic situation. But it's not just violence. Mismanaged anger creates emotional wounds, right? It, it creates unpleasant workplaces and miserable marriages. Anger causes all kinds of misery, and everybody battles it. Why is anger so universal? Because anger has to do with your kingdom, which we're learning about a lot about in the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody has a personal kingdom, and your personal kingdom is where your will reigns. It's where you call the shots. It's where you make the decisions. And anger is what happens when our will is blocked. Anger is the response to a thwarted will. And it's actually designed to be a helpful instinct to move us to action to remove the obstacles that get in the way of what we need or what we want. Uh, the problem is that the initial response uh, is to remove that which blocks our will, to destroy that which blocks our will, to, to kill that which blocks our will. So when your alarm clock goes off in the morning, your first instinct is to kill your alarm clock because it is obstructing your will, which is to sleep. When you move through your house in the middle of the night and you hit your toe on that chair, you get angry at the chair, like the chair attacked you. And psychologists talk about this. This is very common. We get angry at what they call stupid, inanimate objects. We do this all the time. Our anger can be directed at something that had no control. Uh, we know that uh, repair shops are filled uh, trying to help people who have accidentally dropped their phones. But did you know they are also filled with people who didn't drop their phones accidentally? They threw their phones intentionally 
because their smartphone was behaving like a dumb phone and they got angry about that or they got angry about the message they received. I can't believe he said that and they are damaging their phones. They're stupid objects, my stupid phone. But the number one cause of anger, of course, is not phones and uh, chairs and alarm clocks. The number one thing that makes us angry is what? Other people. And now I've crossed the line. Now it's not you stupid chair, you stupid phone. Now it's you stupid person. And now I'm in some dangerous territory. Now the problem isn't that my will is being blocked. The problem is that I will harm to a person. I actually want bad things to happen to them. And Jesus says that's never okay. It's never okay to will harm to another person. Jesus said, love your neighbor. He also said, love your enemy. So he didn't give us a lot of wiggle room on this. And one of the definitions of love is to will the good of another, to want good and blessing for another. It is never okay to cease willing the good of another. Jesus goes on in this teaching. Uh, in verse 21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That makes sense. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Really? You're going to be subject for judgment for just being angry? It seems so impossible, so ridiculous that people have tried to come up with ways to wiggle out of these words of Jesus. I'll tell you the two most popular ways in case you want to grab one of these. Uh, the first one is this. People say, read it and they say, Jesus must have meant unjustified anger. And in fact, some of your Bibles, we have a little footnote that says, angry without cause. Now that phrase without cause is not in most of the manuscripts. We believe what happened is a well-meaning scribe as they were copying uh, the, the, the Bible over and over again, they decided to be helpful and clarify what Jesus clearly must have meant because he could not have meant just angry. He must have meant unjustified anger. In other words, unjustified anger is bad, but what I feel is righteous indignation, which is good. But the problem with redefining the words of Jesus is that, of course, we always feel our own anger is righteous anger. We always let ourselves off the hook by our interpretation. The other way people have come at this is to say what Jesus says here and in other places in the Sermon on the Mount is it's so impossible, the bar is so high, therefore I will choose to focus on the theology of Jesus. I will study the doctrine but I will not do the actions. I will believe, but not obey. And somehow we have convinced ourselves that this is okay. I will follow Jesus in belief, but not in action. And when people reinterpret what Jesus said so they can get out of what he said about being angry, it makes me so angry. <laughs> Anger can make us feel superior, which is why you will never find a humble, angry person. Social commentators have written a lot these days about how Americans are becoming angrier and angrier. We live in what uh, they're calling now a culture of outrage. One author wrote this, Outrage has become an integral part of American society, but this rage is contagious 
and infecting society like a deadly virus. The myriad of political issues, scandals, and conflicts constantly displayed as breaking news can be correlated with anger's rapid generation rate. Just keeps generating in our country higher and higher. Our feelings of anger also boast feelings of righteousness, power, and moral superiority. And this line, anger becomes satisfying and addictive. There's a part of being angry that we enjoy. It makes us feel superior and right. And this is contagious right now. Another writer says, for, for a frightening number of Americans, the art of being offended by everything, or even better, loudly and publicly complaining about being offended by everything, is pursued with alarming dedication. For some, being offended is practically a credo and an all-encompassing way of life. Why is this happening in our culture now? When I was growing up, we had four television stations. Anybody remember that? And pretty much all of the country sat and watched the same nightly news. Now, thankfully, today we have a, a hundred different television stations, more than that, and thousands of podcasts. And I'm grateful for that. I would not want to go back to only having four stations. But what that means is that every American can find a news source, a news commentary that tells them exactly what they already believe and isolates them from the ideas of other people. And we live in these echo chambers that just crank us up and it is making us so angry with people who believe something differently than we do. Anger is dangerous. Jesus knows because it justifies not willing the good of another. It justifies willing to harm other people. Jesus goes on, verse 22. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow! Raka in, in, uh, is a... Uh, guttural sound, it's an Arabic word, rach, racha. You gotta make, make that back and forth. Everybody try that, racha, racha. It kind of sounds like you're spitting. Some of you just did spit. And spitting is a form of contempt. You worthless piece of. That's what's going on here. Now, people might hear the words of Jesus and say, okay, so if I don't say a bad word, if I don't swear and I don't explode in, in violent anger, then I'm okay, right? Uh, wrong. Anger takes all different kinds of forms. Some of you are exploders, but some of you are like me and you cramp it all inside. How we look at somebody, how we don't look at somebody. How we speak to someone, how we don't speak to someone how we touch somebody, how we avoid touching somebody. Sarcasm, sabotage, intentional forgetting, passive aggressiveness, withdrawing, avoiding. These can be every bit as unloving as swearing at somebody or exploding in anger. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving us new rules. This is very important. Jesus is not giving us new rules. He's not saying, look, as long as you don't murder or swear, you're okay. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is giving a picture of what kingdom life looks like. 
a picture of what it would look like when someone has a heart of goodness, a heart pervaded by love, this inside-out goodness. It's a picture, an illustration of what life lived in the kingdom looks like. And then he goes on to give two illustrations that I think are more practical about what to do about anger, two lessons, two pictures that Jesus gives. And the first one could be framed this way, make reconciling a relationship a higher priority than doing something religious. Jesus says if you're bringing a gift to the altar, like you're in a worship service, and you're singing songs, and you're bringing an offering, and there you remember that somebody's got something against you, there's a conflict, might be their fault, might be your fault, might be a mixture, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, go, right in the middle of that worship service, just get up and go and reconcile with them. That's what love would do, that's more important. Reconciliation, prioritize that over, uh, over religious ritual. Now our trustees would like me to point out that Jesus did say, leave your gift, then go. <laughs> but the point is still well taken. Prioritize reconciliation over religious activity. Prioritize reconciliation over just about anything else. Last week, I had the good fortune to go to the Secretary of State office to have my license renewed uh, because my birthday's in January. A January birthday is really not germane to the story. I just wanted you to know. Um, <laughs> People don't think of the Secretary of State office as being a place of peace. It can be a place where you see a lot of anger. I've heard people complain about the, the people who work at the Secretary of State's office. But what I observed was the customers just being rude to the employees. It's like they came in ready to fight. Like, I have this will. I want to accomplish something. And everybody here is standing in my way. The people behind the desk, the people in front of me in line, they're all here to thwart my will. And you can just sense they're in there saying, fool, fool, fool. And then you get in front of the camera that's going to take your picture for the driver's license. Fool, fool. And, and, you know, uh. The invitation of Jesus is not to grit your teeth and try really hard not to say a bad word. The invitation of Jesus is to die to yourself, to die to your ego, to die to your personal kingdom, to think of other people as better than yourselves. And Jesus says it's counterintuitive, but it's a better way to live. It's a way to live in freedom. And then Jesus gives a second illustration, and we might summarize his point by saying, keep settled matters settled. Jesus says, suppose someone takes you to court. You're in a legal battle. It's a financial battle, and you're going to court. What do you do? Someone has hurt you. Jesus says, settle matters quickly. Settle it like on the way to the court. Settle it before it gets too far. Settle it early, and then once it's settled, keep it settled. Don't bring it up again. Don't talk to other people about it. Keep settled matters settled. Jesus said elsewhere, outside the Sermon on the Mount, another teaching, he said, if a brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. Don't involve a lot of other people. See, some people think they're going to handle their anger by going to a third person, going to a friend uh, uh, who's going to understand and sympathize and telling that friend why you're so angry. But a lot of research shows that telling somebody about why you're angry does not help you uh, dissipate your anger. It only rehearses it. It reinforces it. 
as I tell that person, can you believe what this person did to me and how obnoxious they are? And, and, then, and then I end up more angry than when I started. Now, this is not to say don't ever seek out a third person. For a lot of us, the best, simple next step you could take would be to seek out a trained Christian counselor. But when you go to a third party, make sure you go uh, in, the, in the attempt to understand and manage your anger, not to simply rehearse it and replay it and crank yourself up all over again. You settle matters quickly, and you leave them settled. And the last piece of counsel I want to give you this morning about handling anger is this. Look to the cross. The cross is God's ultimate weapon against anger and hostility. The Bible teaches the only power to forgive lies in the experience of being forgiven. It says in Colossians, uh, the same thing it says in a lot of other places in the Bible, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has any grievance against someone. And then would you read that last line aloud with me? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. How did the Lord forgive you? Completely. Completely. The only thing that gives fallible fallen human beings the ability to extend grace to somebody who does not deserve it is the experience of being released from a mountain of moral debt before a just and holy God. And once you've received that kind of forgiveness, how can you refuse to extend it to somebody else? Over the Christmas break, I was reading again the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you know the story of this famous missionary couple. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot were a young couple in their 20s. And along with a few other couples... Uh, they really felt called to reach an unreached people group in Ecuador. And this tribe, this people group that they had learned about, was known for their violent ways. But these young couples, they, they prayed, and they prepared, and they studied, and they strategized how they would communicate God's love to people who had no idea. And initially, uh, they started with taking their small airplane and flying it over the area where the tribe lived and dropping gifts to kind of pave the way. And it was decided that the men should make contact first. This was, in, uh, this was January 8, 1956, same year that our church began. And the men uh, flew in their small plane. They found a place to land on the beach, and they got out of the airplane, and they were met by warriors from this tribe, and all four men were slaughtered on that beach. News got back. People were distraught. Uh, devastated and of course widows and families were grieving a lot of them went home left the mission field Elizabeth was grieving not only the loss of her husband but the loss of direction God did did we did we misunderstand you and what do I do now and Elizabeth could not shake the calling that she had for this people so she decides to go back and she gets in a canoe and puts her one-year-old daughter in the back of the canoe and paddles upstream to that very same beach. Can you imagine? And the tension in the story mounts as she tells it about getting out of the canoe and being greeted by the people of this tribe. Now, what she did not know, what she could not have known, is there was an old legend in this tribe that one day a woman with white hair would come and would give them a message from God. 
And so they asked her, what's, what's the message from God? What, is, what does God want us to know? And Elizabeth said, oh, I, I do have a message from God for you. And the message from God is this, I forgive you. And she went on to explain that she is the wife of one of the men who came to bring a message from God and who they slaughtered out of their violent traditions. This tribe was so violent, so revengeful in their history, in their practices, that there was no word for forgiveness in their language. And so it took time for them to understand this message that God had for them, that they didn't have to live this way. In fact, Elizabeth says she looked around the tribe and see people who were missing fingers and they had cuts and scars all over them. Their, their cycles of retributive violence were killing not just other tribes, it was killing them. And so the message of forgiveness and reconciliation was going to be transformative. And it always is, right? It was for me. When I was living as an enemy of God in my own mind, says Colossians, an enemy of God in my own mind, alienated from God, God reconciled me to himself through the death and resurrection of his son. God said, I forgive you. And the message of forgiveness and reconciliation transformed this tribe. The tribe was originally, uh, the name of the tribe was originally translated savage. And they were so transformed that they changed their name to human. Which is a beautiful picture of what Jesus and forgiveness does for me as well. It moves me from my savage self and my retributive, revengeful cycles and my pettiness and being alienated from God, an enemy of God in my own mind. And it makes me human, a person made in God's image, a bearer of good news to the world. And how did, how did Elizabeth Elliot do that? Where, where did she find the power to forgive? She found it at the cross. The cross is the place where we see the ultimate expression of the heart of God. The cross is God's ultimate weapon against the anger and hostility, against the hatred and the hurt and the sin that would otherwise destroy the human race. The cross. Only the cross. Will you pray with me? Well, God, we thank you for the wisdom of Jesus. Help us to understand and live in the kingdom that he announced. Free us from the burden of legalism and transform us into people who are truly good from the inside out. We bring our anger and hostility and hurt and bitterness to the cross. We confess, God, that we have held and nursed grudges. We have allowed our anger to feed our sense of superiority. We have looked down on others. We have not forgiven as you have forgiven us. Transform our savage hearts. Meet us now in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. As we take the bread and the cup, remind us the cost of our sin and the fullness of your love. May your grace fill us to overflowing. In your death and resurrection, may we be raised to life. We pray this together in Jesus' name.
And everybody said, 